Hi everyone, this is Cassie and you are listening to True Crime Trophy. As you all know, I have rebranded Wine and True Crime into True Crime Trophy. I just wanted to talk about why I made that decision. It was because we were very similar name-wise to a more established podcast and there was no intention to rip off that podcast at all. Once we got established and we were creating our own content, we wanted to be known in our own right. And then Carly had to leave for personal reasons and we tried to give time to see if it was going to be possible for her to come back. And unfortunately, she is not able to return. I still wish her the very best of luck and I know we'll still remain friends which is a very big positive because I'm so thankful she started off our podcast journey with me and I look forward to hearing what she gets up to in the future. So because I've decided to carry on with the True Crime podcast and with everything that's been going on, I decided it was just time for a rebrand. I hope you enjoy it. Every 10 episodes will be a season and each season will have a theme. This first season is serial killers, something that we all love to discuss. Every week on my social media pages, I will be popping on polls, I'll be asking for your opinions. I would love you to all get interactive on my social media pages. Let me know what you're enjoying, what you're not. I can always use the feedback. We'll give all these cases a gold, a silver, or a bronze, and we'll sort out the true crime trophy cabinet. So, case one for the first season of True Crime Trophy, I'm bringing you to the UK, and we're going to talk about Dennis Nilsson. I'm going to place a trigger warning at the beginning of this case, as it's extremely graphic. Hi, I'm Emily. And I'm Andy. And welcome to Unnatural, a true crime podcast. We cover the cases everyone's talking about. 2018 murder of Molly Tibbetts. And the cases no one's talking about. Today we are going to talk about a little girl named Cherry Mahan who went missing. Providing our own unique and sometimes quirky perspectives. I have two words for you. Yeah. Makes sense. (laughs) Tune in to Unnatural, a true crime podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. childhood. His father was in the Norwegian forces and had met Dennis's mother when he had travelled to Scotland following the German occupation of Norway in 1940. His father didn't take his marriage vow seriously and all the children between the couple were conceived on their father's brief trip back. His mother then filed for divorce and relied on her parents to help her with her three children. Dennis was reported to be a quiet yet adventurous child. He was especially close to his maternal grandfather. Unfortunately, in October 1951, whilst fishing, his grandfather passed away from a heart attack 
This seemed to cause Dennis to become more quiet and withdrawn, rarely showing any affection. As Dennis approached puberty, he realised he was gay, which initially confused and shamed him. He didn't reveal this to anyone. On one occasion, he caressed and fondled his older brother as he slept, which made his older brother start to regularly belittle Dennis in public. At the age of 14, Dennis joined the Armed Cadet Force, viewing the British Army as a potential avenue for escaping life with his mother, stepfather and many siblings. He joined the Army in September 1961. He never revealed his sexuality to his Army peers to the point where he wouldn't shower in front of anyone for fear of getting an erection. In mid-1964, Dennis passed his initial catering exam and was sent to West Germany where he served as a private. During this deployment, Dennis began to increase his intake of alcohol. On one occasion, Dennis drank himself into a stupor, waking up on the floor of a German youth's flat. Nothing had happened, but this started his fantasies about a young, slender male being passive. Over time, these fantasies corroded into his partner being unconscious or dead. After two years in West Germany, Dennis returned to Scotland, where he passed his official catering exam. He was then sent to Norway as a cook in 1967, which was a much more dangerous posting than West Germany had been. During this posting, Dennis had his own room, which afforded him the privacy to masturbate without discovery. Whilst using a full-length mirror, he could create an effect whereby positioning it so his head was out of view, he could visualise being involved with another man. This way, he could visually split his personality. He could imagine himself as both the domineering and the passive partner. In 1969, he was stationed in West Berlin, where he had his first sexual encounter with a female who was a sex worker he had paid. Although he bragged of this to his colleagues, he later stated that he found it overrated and depressing. He ended his military career at the rank of corporal in October 1972. Between October and December of that year, he stayed with family until one night he joined his older brother, his sister-in-law and another couple and watched a documentary on gay men. All present except Dennis viewed the topic with disgust. Dennis retaliated by talking of gay rights. A fight broke out after which his older brother informed Dennis's mother that he was gay. Dennis never spoke to his brother again and maintained sporadic written contact with his mother and younger siblings. He decided to move to London to begin a training course to join the Metropolitan Police. In April 1973, he completed his training and enjoyed work as a junior constable although he missed the comradeship of the forces. He began to drink alone in the evenings. He also started to frequent gay pubs and engaged in several casual liaisons with men. His father passed away that year and in December he resigned from the police. After working on and off as a security guard for six months, Dennis found work as a civil servant working at the job centre. By late 1978, Dennis was living a solitary existence. He had three failed relationships and he viewed himself as unfit to live with. He 
Between 1978 and 1983, Dennis was now known to have killed a minimum of 12 men and boys and having attempted to kill seven more. The majority of his victims were homeless or gay men. The others were heterosexual who he had met by chance. He lured his victims to either of the two addresses he had been known to occupy in this time using alcohol or shelter. His typical routine with the victim would include giving food and alcohol and then strangling them, typically with a ligature, either to unconsciousness or completely to death. If he achieved his victim becoming unconscious, Dennis would then drown them in either a bathtub, a sink or a bucket. He would then ritually bathe, clothe and retain the bodies inside the residence for several weeks before dismembering them. Any personal possessions of his victims were destroyed as he later described his victims as props in his fantasies. Between 1978 and 1981, the victims at the first residence were disposed of by burning on a bonfire after removing their internal organs. The organs were put beside the fence behind his flat or close to Gladstone Park. The victims killed between 1982 and 1983 at the second residence. He placed their flesh and small bones in the toilet and flushed them. He would then hide the rest of the body inside the flat. He admitted he would engage in masturbation as he viewed the nude bodies of several of his victims, but he was adamant he had never penetrated any of them. Dennis wrote this about the murder of his first victim, quote, I eased him into his new bed, meaning the floorboards. A week later, I wondered whether his body had changed at all or had started to decompose. I disinterred him and pulled the dirt-stained youth up onto the floor. His skin was very dirty. I stripped myself naked and carried him into the bathroom and washed the body. There was practically no discoloration and his skin was pale white. His limbs were more relaxed than when I had put him down there." End quote. In 1973, Dennis had attempted to murder a student from Hong Kong the man escaped and reported the incident to police. Dennis was questioned before the student decided to not press charges. Dennis would regularly take photos of the bodies in various suggestive positions and would also place the bodies in mundane positions such as seated in an armchair so he could watch TV with them. Dennis's recollections of his victims were vague but he could graphically recall how each victim had been murdered and how long the body had been retained until he dissected them. During the summer months, inevitably, the residences would start to have a foul odour and he would regularly find the bodies crawling with maggots and insects. He placed deodorants underneath the floorboards and would spray insecticide twice daily, but this didn't stop the smell or the flies. At the first residence, once the infestation got too much, Dennis disinterred all the bodies and dissected them all. He built a communal bonfire and to disguise the smell of burning flesh, he also put on an old car tyre. When the fire reduced to ashes, Dennis used a rake to search the debris, smashing a skull he found in the process. He casually reflected, quote, end of the day, end of the drink, 
end of the person, floorboards back, carpet replaced and back to work, end quote. At the second residence, Dennis didn't have access to a garden, so after dissection, the parts would have to be hidden around the flat. He also boiled the heads, hands and feet to remove the flesh. On the 4th of February 1983, Dennis wrote a letter of complaint to estate agents complaining that the drains at the property were blocked. Because of this complaint, a plumber came out four days later and opened a drain cover at the side of the house. He discovered it packed with a flesh-like substance and numerous bones. He reported this to his supervisor. Because the plumber had arrived at dusk, it was agreed that they would return the next day. Dennis and another tenant talked to the plumber before he left, discussing the blockage. The next morning, the plumber and the supervisor returned to the building, only to find that the drain had been cleared. They found some more scraps of flesh and four bones in a pipe leading from the top floor flat that Dennis lived in and immediately called police. The police discovered further scraps and more bones and these were taken to the mortuary. The police waited outside for Dennis to return from work. When he arrived, a detective chief inspector and two of his colleagues introduced themselves and explained why they were there. As the three officers and Dennis entered the flat, the officers immediately smelt the odour of rotting flesh. When asked where the rest of the body was, Dennis calmly told him. They found two plastic bags in a nearby wardrobe containing the rest of a human body. More bodies were found under the floorboards. When they asked him if there were any more bodies to be found, Dennis said, quote, It's a long story. It goes back a long time. I'll tell you everything. I want to get it off my chest. Not here. At the police station. End quote. He was then arrested and cautioned on suspicion of murder before being taken to the police station. As he was being escorted, he was asked if the remains in the flat belonged to one person or two. He answered, quote, 15 or 16 since 1978, quote. In an interview conducted on the 10th of February, Dennis confessed and told them where they would find other bodily parts. He told them about his previous residence and the victims there as well, as admitting to attempting to kill a further seven people. He was escorted to his previous residence where he indicated three locations of his burnt victims. Under English law, the police have 48 hours in which to charge or release the suspect. The remains of the victims were laid out on the mortuary floor in the hope of a positive identification. The fingerprints of one matched to a police file of a Stephen Sinclair. With this, the police charged him with Stephen's murder and a statement revealing this was sent to the press. Formal questioning began that night with Dennis's solicitor present. He was interviewed by police on 16 separate occasions over the following days. Dennis adamantly stated he did not know why he killed. He maintained that his choice to murder was not made until moments before it happened. He also said that his victims were, quote, too perfect and beautiful for the pathetic ritual of commonplace sex, end quote. When asked how he dissected his victims, Dennis told the police that he would have to fortify his nerves with whiskey 
and he often vomited while he did it. However, immediately prior to the dissection, he would masturbate as he was sat or knelt alongside the body. He said this was his symbolic gesture of saying goodbye to his victims. When asked if he had any remorse, Dennis replied, quote, I wish I could stop, but I couldn't. I had no other thrill or happiness, end quote. When he was charged with murder and was awaiting trial at Brixton Prison, he said his mood was one of resignation and relief. He refused to wear prison clothes as he awaited trial, as he believed in innocent until proven guilty. He vowed he would protest by not wearing any clothes at all. He threw a chamber pot out of his cell which hit several police officers and this incident resulted in Dennis being found guilty of assault and given 56 days in solitary confinement. On the 26th of May 1983, Dennis was to stand trial at the Old Bailey on five counts of murder and two of attempted murder. Another murder charge was added later. During the trial, Dennis would fire his solicitor multiple times before rehiring him again. It is reported that Dennis planned to plead guilty to all charges, but after firing his solicitor and hiring someone new, he pled not guilty to all charges instead. The argument during the trial between the prosecution and the defence wasn't whether Dennis had killed his victims, but his state of mind before and during the killings. The prosecution said he was sane and had acted with premeditation while the defence went for the diminished responsibility. Witnesses called to the stand were the men that Dennis had tried to kill and had either failed or let them go. It was discovered that although reports about Dennis had been given to the police, they had been dismissed as a lover's quarrel. All the men stated how calm and rational Dennis had been. The DCI read out some of the statements Dennis had given him including, quote, I have no tears for my victims, I have no tears for myself, nor those bereaved by my actions, end quote. The one thing that puzzled the DCI was that Dennis had contributed most of the information willingly and had encouraged the discovery of evidence against himself. Throughout the trial, Dennis sat with a look of indifference on his face. On the 4th of November 1983, he was found guilty of six counts of murder and one of attempted murder. He was sentenced to life imprisonment with a recommendation that he serve a minimum of 25 years. He did not lodge an appeal, fully accepting the judge's sentence. A month later, an inmate cut Dennis on the face and chest with a razor blade, resulting in Dennis needing 89 stitches. He was transferred to another prison before moving on towards HMP Wakefield, where he remained until 1990. In 1991, he was transferred to a vulnerable prisoner unit at a different prison, where he stayed until 1993. He was again transferred to another prison, where he was a Category A prisoner, with increased segregation from the other inmates. In December 1994, Dennis's minimum term of 25 years was replaced with a whole life tariff by the Home Secretary to ensure he would never be released from prison. Dennis accepted this punishment. He was transferred one last time in 2003 and spent his days translating books into Braille. Dennis Nilsson died in prison on the 12th of May 2018. What gets me is how 
calm he was talking about his crimes. He knew what he was doing was wrong and he still did it. And psychiatrists during the trial testified that through a lack of emotional development, Dennis experienced difficulty showing any emotion apart from anger. They stated that he had narcissistic traits and was able to depersonalise other people, leading to his association of unconscious bodies and sexual arousal. It's also said that he would suffer from occasional outbreaks of schizoid disturbances. They mentioned that while he was intellectually aware of his actions, because of his narcissistic personality disorder, he did not appreciate the criminal nature of what he had done. He was found to be abnormal in a colloquial sense. A manipulative person who was capable of forming relationships but forced himself to objectify people. Dennis, in his own words, stated that he constantly led two separate lives while he was in the army. He wrote, quote, When I was with people, I was in the real world, and in my private life, I snapped instantly into my fantasy life. I could oscillate between the two with instant ease." End quote. He also said that taking an opportunity to have a younger, attractive and passive partner temporarily relieved him of a general feeling of inadequacy. So this was a person that was just desperately lonely and at a time where being gay was not allowed and he took that and created fantasy but when the fantasies darkened it still wasn't enough to put him off but the more he did the more of a bigger buzz he needed just like any other addiction I am in no way trying to appease what he did what he did was barbaric and no one should meet their end at the hands of someone else. But seeing his background and seeing the mental health side of it all makes you wonder whether if it had been in today's society whether he would have been caught earlier or not. When he got sentenced he didn't fight it. He, he wasn't bothered about trying to get out of prison. He knew he was in there forever. He just accepted it and got on with it. Dennis had to move prisons constantly because of retaliation from other prisoners. They were victimising him. They were going after him because of what he had done. But it's very strange to think that he did the same thing to all these men, but yet he's the one that was being protected. Hey partners, I'm Denisha. And I'm Dana. And we are the host of the new podcast called Partners in Crime, where we discuss true crime, paranormal, and the weird. Join us on your daily adventures, whether you're working out, driving, chilling with a friend, and if you're brave enough, just before you go to bed. Like, subscribe, leave a review, and check us out. Bye. Bye.
So I hope you've enjoyed today's case, the first case of my serial killer season. I'll be posting some polls and questions on my social media pages if you'd like to discuss this case more. I'm also interested to hear from you about other serial killers. What case would you like me to delve into next? Look for at True Crime Trophy Official on Instagram and True Crime Trophy on Facebook. I've got a couple of lovely reviews from some listeners of mine and I thank each of you from the bottom of my heart. They were so lovely to read and they really gave me a boost. My country list is growing. We've got so many listeners. So I want to say hi to all my listeners in the US, the UK, Canada, Germany, New Zealand, Australia, France, India, Belgium, Brazil, Sweden, Dominican Republic, South Africa and Greece. A massive hello and thank you so much for listening and I hope you are going to continue to do so. Please give me a rate, review and subscribe and hopefully we will reach more countries next time. So for now guys, I'm going to chuff off and I will see you on the next episode. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.